Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Martin Jordan Minnett, a student at the University of Virginia School of Law and a master's student in the University of Virginia History Department. We will discuss his note, The Irrelevance of Blackstone, Rethinking the 18th Century Importance of the Commentaries. So welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Thank you very much for having me. So I just want to start by congratulating you on all of the wonderful attention and well-deserved attention that your really excellent uh, paper has gotten. It's really kind of all over legal history internet. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's certainly been a, a pleasant surprise for me, but uh, but it's nice to to see the effort get some some attention for sure. Yeah, so I re- I really enjoyed reading your paper as well and found it really illuminating and also like incredibly ambitious project for a law student to take on. And so I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that aspect of the paper as well, but maybe we can start by talking about the the substance of it. So I was, I was wondering if for listeners who may not be familiar with 18th century legal history, if you could say a little something about who Blackstone was and what the commentaries are. Right. So so Blackstone is, is considered, and, and part the paper opens with a discussion of how Blackstone's considered the, pri- uh, the primary 18th century legal scholar, um, at least from our lens looking backwards. And, and what I hope to do is sort of challenge that. But what he's known for is this four-part um, commentaries on the common law, which is sort of uh, intended to be a top to bottom summary of the the common law as it existed when he wrote it in eighteen or in seventeen sixty five, um, and and it, it it ends up being used uh, more or less from its inception and and through the nineteenth century, and then is a good point of reference in in, in modern times for kind of the way that the common law existed. Um, approximately at the time of the founding. Um, and it's used, it was used for everything, education, cited in opinions, uh, and, and kind of guiding legal thought for almost a century or more. Yeah. I mean, I think one sort of indication of how important we think about it being today is it's like one of the few sources that has its own dedicated citation format in the blue book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's traumatizing as a um, recently graduated from law review member, but uh, but yes, that's right. So maybe just to flesh it out a little bit, you could say a little bit more about sort of the context in which Blackstone created the commentaries. Maybe sort of how they were different from other forms of legal scholarship and legal synthesis that were available at the time, and maybe give listeners a sense of sort of why looking retrospectively, we see Blackstone as being such a kind of lodestar of 18th century legal thought. Sure. So I, I think the reason that we find Blackstone so appealing is, is much the same reason that he was appealing in his own time, is that the work is uh, is unusually clear. Um, he blacks there were there was a long tradition of of writing treatises and kind of summaries of the common law that covered huge amounts of ground uh, that had existed for hundreds of years. Initially, these were passed down as as annotated manuscripts from lawyer to lawyer. Then they became published works, and the most popular manuscripts were the kind of the most eminent of the published works. Um, but those works were very scatterbrained, like um, Cook's Institutes, which are enormously popular well into the 19th century, are sort of a jumble. They're a commentary on a 15th century work by um, 
by somebody named Littleton who was talking about land tenures mostly. So you have to kind of sort through a bunch of stuff to get the general idea. What Blackstone does that's unusual is he's writing yet another summary of the common law, but he's doing it in a top to bottom uh, summarized way with sort of a a view from 30,000 feet about what the common law should be. And it's organized in a clear way that flows rather than kind of being jumbled all over the place. And so it, it, it makes it look, it, it made it look to people who were studying it at the, the time that this this obscure body of rules actually had some meaning to it and some consistency. And and then if we're looking back, trying to make sense of legal doctrines as they stood in in the 18th century, it gives us a similar perspective. Right. And and I got to say, like from a sort of legal history standpoint, arguing today that you know Blackstone's importance wasn't as profound in his historical moment or in the sort of kind of key historical moments in the late 18th century America is about as kind of provocative as a claim as as it gets in a lot of ways um and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the sources that you use to substantiate this claim? Because I mean, you did some really ambitious primary source historical work, which I think is really unusual for law students. Uh, I, yeah. And, and I have, I have the UVA library system and particularly the law librarians to, to thank for that because they were really helpful in, in a, getting a student like me um, access and kind of understanding of what I was looking at at early stages. But, but it started from, it didn't start there for me. I, I, I kind of noticed this there was this sort of this temporal anomaly in that um, Blackstone doesn't his work isn't published anywhere until 1765. It's not published in the in North America in a North American edition until 1772. Um, and then a lot of the citations in Supreme Court opinions are from the early 1800 early 1800s editions, St. George Tucker's edition in particular. Um, so that was kind of got what me what got me thinking. But then I, I kind of became interested in this question of, well, what would that have looked like in practice um, if, if you were using Blackstone and how do we get at that? And and the, a big problem is that you don't have court reporters in any meaningful sense uh, in, in the late 18th century um, or, or earlier. What you get are mostly just reports of the decision, but not necessarily the reasoning um, you don't have a lot of those kind of court materials that we use now. And if you do, they're older than Blackstone. And so, so that doesn't tell you much. So what I tried to go into was kind of more, what, what can we get from what was, how can we figure out what was getting traction from lawyers, uh, in what they considered important. And one way I did that was by looking at student notes. Um, so what features prominently in the note is, is these, these things called commonplace books that are almost, like more, much more robust versions of student outlines today, uh, <laughs> which I felt, I felt their pain for sure. Uh, they, they would sit there with these very difficult to, to penetrate books and just kind of copy in under various headings. So you'd have like, uh, I don't know, you'd have a heading like fee tail, and then you would have all these principles of, of law that you got from different sources with your citations and then when you wanted to go look at it, you could pull that up and find it. Um, and so I, I kind of perused these these materials and and tried to see what books they were using. And that would tell me first what the student had available. But it would also give me some insight into 
what the lawyer who was supervising the student um, thought that was in, was important enough to put in front of them. So, uh, and, and what I found in, in that was that Blackstone is there, um, but but not what you would consider um, the primary source by any means. It's kind of interesting as well because in an odd way, the the commonplace books that you mention are almost like like a reflect almost like a version of what Blackstone himself was doing, and which makes it even more surprising that Blackstone wouldn't feature more prominently in them insofar as it seems like he sort of provides a ready-made structure that otherwise the students would have had to create for themselves. In in some ways, but his structure is more theoretical. And I, I, I think that's why he was, he caught on later was that it, it's, it's a, a theory that underlines his work that's particularly appealing. And I think that's the early adopters of his work, um, especially in North America, attached to kind of his view on what the common law was rather than the content of it, that that would come later. So, um, but what you had available as a student was stuff that was maybe more um, uh, apt for commonplacing. John Marshall, for instance, when he's doing this in uh, 1780, Hmm. He has at his disposal, he has a, a 1765 edition of Blackstone um, that he makes a couple references to. But most of his citations are to this work by um, Matthew Bacon, which is basically a multi-volume commonplace ready-made. So it's, it's, every, it's just a whole bunch of uh, almost like maxims of law copied in with citations to other works. And so you could just copy that into your commonplace and then backfill with the works that Bacon cites. So if you're just doing this kind of rote process, Blackstone isn't super helpful for that. He's probably a good book to read somewhere along the line to kind of figure out what it all means. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about your your paper is kind of what it says about the his, historiography of legal pedagogy, as it were, and sort of like what people were thinking about when they thought about how the law was structured at a particular period of time. And really, a lot of the the sources that you point to people using are not well known today at all. I, I was wondering if you could highlight some of those that you you think might be especially interesting or important to people to recognize today were actually significant back in the moment, but might be forgotten today. As far as you mean, as far as like uh, the treatises and that, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the pedagogy angle is from um, the late, late professor Gordon Hilton, who was at UVA. Um, he was, mm. he was working on a, um, on a history of legal education at UVA and, and he, kind of got me acquainted with the process as it worked in the 19th century and sort of how these ideas circulated. Um, and, and I kind of got an idea of the process there. And I just basically what, what you end up finding is that these, uh, the education system is all informal. There's no formal uh, professorships until 1779 with George Wythe, uh, uh, William and Mary, and then no real law schools until at least 1784 and then, and then later. So the way that you learn this stuff is there's prefaces in books that tell you what to study. There's um, letters passed between people that telling students what to study. And then there's letters that are published in works um, that tell people what to study. And, and I, I encounter this a lot. Um, Thomas Jefferson and, and John Adams used to answer questions from students all the time Um not their students, but they, you know, somebody's cousin's brother or whatever would say, oh, you should write to 
to John Adams, he's he's a great lawyer and he can probably tell you what to study. And they, they do. They list out what what they should be reading. And that Jefferson is goes overboard, of course, and um, lists uh, divides the day up into discrete categories of different a- avenues of study. Um, but but what that did was pointed me in the direction of a, a lot of different kind of obscure works. And, and a lot of them are, are from the um, 17th and, and even 16th centuries. And they, they originated as manuscripts kept by judges and practicing lawyers in, in London, in Westminster, and, and then eventually became published works that, that were annotated. And a lot of them, um, so like Rolls Abridgment is, is kind of, it, it was fairly impenetrable when first written and, and even more so now. Um, and, and, but that's a, that's a common way to kind of structure the work. And then you have more practical manuals um, like um, uh, Hawkins Pleas of the crown, which is almost a, a how to book. Um, and, and so this, this whole mix of materials, and then there's helpfully some library catalogs that I could reference to kind of see how much of these things were actually in circulation, or is this person writing this letter have kind of idiosyncratic views. Right. And, and, and I guess one of the things that really struck me about your note was with the sort of rise of originalism in both judicial interpretation and in a lot of scholarship, this argument that, you know, Blackstone was less kind of prominent or less, um, uh, less a kind of lodestar in terms of how people thought about the law at the time of the sort of kind of conception and drafting of the constitution and, and early laws suggests that maybe we ought to think or su- suggest that maybe that, that, that we're missing a piece of that puzzle insofar as we're interested in that, in that way of thinking about the constitution and, and the law. I, I mean, I wonder if you have thoughts on sort of implications that your findings might have for for originalist legal thinking and originalist scholarship. Yeah, I, I agree that that's kind of um I mean the the work was in parts inspired by the um the use of, of Blackstone on the Supreme Court. I, I guess my my like one sentence prescription from what I, I would do if if I were using these materials is is to to not start or to not end the inquiry with Blackstone um because that's not what the people who were uh, who were interested in would have done, um, they might. And in particular, some things that he discussed um, and kind of his view of the theory of the law is probably worth more weight than what he thought about a particular doctrine. For that, we may have to go to some some admittedly much more difficult uh, sources if we're gonna if we're gonna really understand what that doctrine looked like in 1787. I, um, I, I another thing is that this is a pretty big period of legal change in the late 18th century. Um, in some work that I've been doing more recently, I, I've been looking at um, materials from Virginia in, in, in the period. And I looked at some writs um, from 1740, and they're all handwritten little pieces of paper. You know, the sheriff of such and such is directed to deliver such and such person. Uh, and then a return on the back. But by 1790, these are printed forms and you just fill in the blanks. It's becoming a much more mm. professional uh, apparatus over the course of the century. Reporters are being published and it's just it's rapidly changing. So I think that the situation we have in 1800 is very different than the situation we have in 1780. 
even. And um, mm. a lot of these materials and a, a, some some originalist and some non-originalist works will will stretch the time period um, significantly, which which uh, I think might compromise um, kind of accuracy at points. Now it's hard to tell exactly where and to what degree, but um, if we want to be especially careful, we can use Blackstone, but he shouldn't be the, the end point. Yeah. I mean, I know it's kind of early in this scholarly project, it seems like, but I wonder if you have any preliminary thoughts about sort of sources that have been from the, that were important in the period that maybe are lesser known or ignored today that people ought to be paying more attention to in understanding how people were thinking about, about how lawyers and judges were thinking about particular legal and constitutional concepts in the sort of revolutionary and pre-constitutional period. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question and, and one that I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer for. Um, uh, you can't go wrong, in my estimation, with either Cook or statutes, and and I, I think that th- with good reason those seem to be ones that that courts go to, um, uh, not as regularly as Blackstone, of course, but somewhat regularly uh, because they're just they're they're ubiquitous. If you can find it in Cook, then then somebody at the founding would have known about it, and anybody who studied law in any capacity would have would have encountered it in reading it. Um, for more specialized subjects, it's 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 more difficult, and and for things like criminal law, it can be difficult as well. Um, but you know, Hawkins' Pleas of the Crown is a really good one, um, and and that some of those specialized journals, uh, it, it's the ones that you find today are are not uncommon. If, if you if you want to find something that's a little obscure, it's difficult to find. So so that's that's at least helpful, but. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is is just when this stuff came about. If it came if it was published in in 1813 and it, it's it's a it's it contains annotations of an older work maybe you know that's being written in a very different environment than than something that was written in in 1750. Um and it, it depends, you know, we may want that answer for what happened between that period or or we may want something that's kind of a pure quote unquote um common law source. So your paper suggests a ton of future research possibilities, and it sounds like you're already pursuing some of them. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about where you see this research project going in the near future. Yeah, it's still, it's, it's early stages for me yet. So, um, and I've been, I've been carefully instructed by my uh, mentors in the history department and in the law school that uh, historical projects are best guided by what you find rather than um, what you want to find. Um, mm. So I'm trying to keep an open mind, but but I'm, I'm mostly interested in this question of what it would have, this broad question of what it was like to practice law in the second half of the of the 18th century. So if you were if you were in John Adams' shoes, or or um, for that matter, Patrick Henry's in Virginia, what, what would it have looked like to get up every day and practice law? What kind of arguments would you have made? How would you have made them? Um, and, and what would you have thought about them? And, and that's, that's somewhat a different question than what, the, uh, it is a different question than what the content of the law is, or, or even what the theory of the law is. It's, it's more what, what would you have used and what would you have had at hand? And I think if, 
to the degree that that has practical implications, I I would find it interesting even if it didn't. Um, but that's <laughs> such as being a historian, I suppose. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I, I, the, to the degree that that has practical implications, it kind of tells us um, how this stuff might have been discussed in a in a in a context in which the Constitution and these ideas were formed. So, for an originalist, it might be useful to know kind of how these arguments were made rather than just the content as we interpret it. Yeah. I mean, it really seems to add to be the beginning of a really important and valuable new perspective on originalism, I think, because it seems like one of the kind of core problems is seeing the law from the contemporary perspective. You know, it's like kind of through a glass darkly at this point in time. And I felt like your paper really shed a meaningful additional light on a period that's in many respects hard to understand today. Yeah, it, it it's it in some ways the legal practice is very similar. Like I mentioned, the students are doing something not dissimilar to what what we're doing in law school now, uh, and and the way that the way that procedure works in, is in some ways very similar. But you know, you're operating in a in a situation where there's not very much in the way of case law. If you don't have cases to point to that are recent, precedent operates fairly differently. Um, the way that the law is conceived as a hierarchy of, of authority is is somewhat different. Um, like um, Chief Justice Hale wrote a, a, a treatise in the 1600s talking about the sources of the common law and its its reason and nat and nature and it's not cases, right? It's 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 got some body to it that's hard to envision from from our 21st century perspective. Um, and so th- that's kind of a hard thing to get at, but, but I think that's where the primary sources really come in handy. And it's, it's the kind of thing that if you're a practicing lawyer writing a brief, you don't have time or, or the wherewithal to get into that kind of stuff. Um, but, but somebody like me can, can hopefully provide some perspective there. So given the subject matter of your note, I think it's appropriate to make a shift into talking a little bit about pedagogy and the student experience. So I, I got to say, you know, your note is like now one of my new favorite student notes up there with like the common law origins of the infield fly rule and the restatement and the restatement of love, you know, the, the real greats of, of student law review scholarship. And so I got to ask you, you know, like, how did it happen? Like, how did you find this topic? How did you think about sort of conceptualizing what you wanted to do with it. You know, do you have advice for other law students about how to write better scholarship as a student? Uh, first of all, that's, that's flattering. I, I, that's not nearly as interesting as the infield fly rule. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's just to, the first step is trying to just read everything very inquisitively. I, when I was reading cases, I, I had, I was in the history program already. So I was, paying careful attention to how the Supreme Court in particular, but lawyers generally use history in making legal arguments. And I wanted something that would have some some modern day um, salience and not just be purely historical. So when I happened upon kind of this temporal discrepancy with with, um, Blackstone being used um, to argue about stuff that maybe he might not have been as prominent in, I, I, I started digging further 
and and that starts with secondary sources that starts with books but i think the the biggest resource i had available to me is is faculty and and, and the library staff we have um, great research librarians here at UVA who, when I asked like, hey, I'm looking for some materials that might tell me what lawyers were thinking about with each other, where do I go with that? And and they could point me in the direction of, well, you know, our, our special collections section has these materials from students. Maybe they're worth having a look at. So it's, it's more, um, it, it's, it's getting the ideas is a hard part. And then and then knowing when to ask for help and how to ask for help is, 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 is difficult in its own way. But I, I think that I, we as law students are uh, afforded such vast resources that, um, that we don't necessarily even know about. And so um, talking to professors for help and, and, and talking to people in the library really, I think, is, is the way that you can take a good idea and turn it into something that's, that's, well executed and well thought out because I mean, we are coming into this with very little experience and these people live and breathe it. So um, that's, that's always what I tell people who are trying to write notes is, is get an idea, flesh it out a little bit and then go talk to somebody because, because that's the drawing on that experience is, is absolutely necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And and I got to say like, you know, your, your article really, like plays to a lot of my prejudices as well. Like I'm consistently telling students that, you know, primary sources are an area where law students can really have the potential to add a lot of value because a lot of legal scholars don't really take the time or energy to dig into them. And, you know, you can add, you can make a real contribution um, simply by, you know, finding and bringing to light things that people didn't previously know about. So I, I'm wondering, do you have any advice to students, uh, you know, as a, both a law student and a hist- history student about kind of how to think about working with primary sources and, and sort of like where they might look and how they, how they might conceptualize where they might add value. Well, the touchstone is patience for sure. Um, (laughs) I, it's, it's, it can be daunting um, to get handed this massive file of, of, uh, of old paper. Um, It's, it's, you have to look at it as kind of letting the archive guide the inquiry and being open to what you find. And, and it is fun in a way because I, I, I think it's fun, but I, you know, trying to, trying to think of people, maybe not as idiosyncratic. It's fun to kind of like get insight into these people's lives and, and read about their, their little stories, even if it's not relevant to your research interest. I remember I was in the archive um, a couple of weeks ago when I encountered a log book of a lawyer recording expenses. And he gave his brother all this money to buy all these clothes. And it was just kind of, you could kind of see him begrudgingly writing all of these checks for new jackets and socks. And it's stories like that, that kind of, it makes it, it makes it feel more worth doing. Like you're trying to get in their heads. Um, I will say there's, you know, just the, the grunt work of trying to decipher handwriting can be really difficult, but, um, but, but the way that, the way that the, the technology improves the process, there's, most libraries have really good research guides out there. And that's the kind of thing that um, librarians can point you towards. And then you can kind of get an idea of what an archive has in it before you ever show up and sit down and, and read it and take pictures of what you want to come back and reference. Um, So 
I, I think it's just if you have an idea of what you're looking for, I guarantee it's there. And, and it's just a question of, of asking the right people and then taking um, what is admittedly a fair amount of time to try and decipher and sift through it and then keeping an open mind into what you find uh, when you get there, because because it's it's very difficult to to have preconceived notions and, and then have them confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and based on reading your paper, it just confirms my, uh, suspicion and belief that the University of Virginia must have an amazing library and amazing research librarians. I wonder if you have any advice for students about working with research librarians and, and using the library specifically in relation to their own, uh, scholarly endeavors. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's, it's one of those, it's an often overlooked piece of the puzzle from students. And, uh, it, and I, I understand that because our interactions are, are with professors and with our, our materials. And, and that's kind of, you interact with the librarians. Um, I'm sure some people can manage to graduate law school without interacting with them at all. But um, there's people in, in all law libraries who, who are familiar with this stuff and, and, and everybody seems very willing to help because um, you know, it, these people are passionate about about preserving this history and, and making sure that it's available to, to the people who need it. And, and when students express an interest, we're people who need it. Um, and, and so th- they were very helpful in, in helping me understand what I was doing from the get go. And then when I would find a, a catalog, what I could do with it, or if I had an idea, um, what to do with it, we have we have some some um, very professional historians who work in our library and are, are working in cataloging and digitizing the, uh, what we have here and then their own scholarship as well. Um, and so they, they were able to offer professional historian perspectives on, on what I was doing and what I was finding. And it's, it's just, it, it's a, it's a tremendous resource and, and it's, it's just the only hurdle to really using these people and, and these materials is to, is just to ask. Um, and, and I've had, I've found it at other libraries too. When I go and do archival work elsewhere, um, everybody's just very willing to help and especially to help a student. So um, it's just a question of um, knowing what to ask and, and building up the courage to send the email or pick up the phone. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience as well. And I know that I couldn't produce most of the scholarship that I do without the help of, of research librarians at my institution and at many others. They really are an invaluable resource. Absolutely. Um, so Jordan, in closing, it's pretty clear to me that you've got a lot more on your plate and we should expect more great work from you in the near future. I wonder if you could say a little something about what we can expect next and when we might get to see it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's tough. The, the problem with stuff like this is that you get a whole bunch of ideas and, and kind of have to try and decide which direction to go uh, first. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been working on kind of digging into legal argumentation and kind of how authority is used. If you're, if you're talking before a court in the late uh, 1700s, what, how would you have referenced authority and what would that authority have been? So kind of supplementing the student materials that, that I have. And, and then another, another aspect that I've thought about going down is this is what we've talked about here today is sort of uh, timelines in, in originalist thought and, and how 
how the law changing over this period of time and how practice changing over this period of time might have uh, influence on how we use sources in originalist analysis, um, especially with focusing on on kind of the turn of the century um, a shift that occurs uh, between between the 1790s and 1800. We'll see. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. No, thank to you. It's, it's been fun to talk about this stuff. My part is only to sit in silence, to express one's feelings as the end draws near is too intimate a task, but I may mention one thought that comes to me as a listener in. The riders in a race do not stop short when they reach the goal. There is a little finishing canter before coming to a standstill. There is time to hear the kind voice of friends and to say to oneself, the work is done. But just as one says that, the answer comes, the race is over, but the work never is done while the power to work remains. The canter that brings you to a standstill need not be only coming to rest. It cannot be while you'll still live, but to live is to function. That is all there is in living. And so I end with a line from a Latin poet who uttered the message more than 1,500 years ago. Death, death clucks my ear and says, live, I am coming. <laughs> <laughs>